You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Heather Cox Richardson. Richardson joined Civics 101 host Hannah McCarthy on stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to discuss her book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Best known for her wildly popular newsletter, Letters from an American, in Democracy Awakening, Richardson takes on the current state of affairs in American politics and history. This conversation was recorded live on September 29, 2023. How are you doing? Oh, I'm is good. The I'm more been, important I've just question. been taking things easy. Yeah, just taking it slow. Just sort of. Hey, hey, listen. Actually, I want to start by thanking you all for staying here. Uh, I, I, it has been a long day, um, and and I do want to emphasize that we really did not bear the brunt of this storm. We were at the airport before it really hit. We got a little bit wet, but we saw the pictures and thought, oh my god. So, uh, so you shouldn't feel that sorry for us. I do wanna, wanna thank my phenomenal friend and agent, Lisa, who got that plane into the air all by herself. <laughs> and, and I also want to say that what has been fun about this tour and everything about the book is that it's always been about friends and family, um, not just the work and my life, but events like this, and I do in fact have at least two very dear old friends in the audience tonight uh, that I went to school with from the time I was in second grade. And uh, hi, Susan and Rick, thanks for being here. And, and I have family here too, my stepson is here, and I will not embarrass him by calling him out by name, but I'm really happy to have them here as symbols of this much larger movement, really. So thanks for being here. So that's really interesting that you say that, Heather, that it's, it's always been about friends and family. So I have been uh, a subscriber to your newsletter for years now. And every single time I open my inbox and see that newsletter there, I feel as though I've got this friend who is saying, no, I've got it, don't worry, I've covered it. I know you're confused, but I can help you <laughs> every time. Um, what is it? Oh, look at that. Yes, exactly. I think there are some people here who might know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, it is my job, my daily job, to understand what's going on in this country, and you help me a lot. What motivated you to start releasing this sometimes daily newsletter to an ever-growing audience? I never set out to write a newsletter. Uh, I set out, really, quite by accident, on September 15th, 2019, to explain to people what the world liked to, looked like to me that day, because for many years I'd been writing a weekly essay on Facebook that looked at art or something, just was something I wanted to write. And I hadn't done it for a while and people were worried about me, because I have had in the past the tendency to get into trouble with some people that you don't want to get into trouble with, and they wondered if I was okay. So I wrote this letter, and, um, and the questions just started pouring in about, at the time there was a, we knew that there had been a letter written by the chair of the 
House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, a, a re representative from California, telling the then acting Director of National Intelligence that he knew there had been a whistleblower and by law he had to give the whistleblower complaint to the, the House of Representatives and he hadn't done it. It was very clear that the legislative branch was accusing the executive branch of breaking a specific law. But that's actually really complicated. So story, you know, people kept throwing in questions and a couple days later I thought, well, I, maybe I should answer this. I felt like I was kind of flooding the airwaves. So I wrote again on September 17th, 2019 and I have posted every night since. And tonight's letter is already almost done. <laughs> that leads perfectly to my next question, which is how. Um, I, and I, I ask that because, like I said, this is, this is what I do on a daily basis. I do become fatigued, and I am not doing as much work as you are doing by any stretch. Uh, what keeps you motivated? I mean, so, so it is a conversation that is going on, and I have access to the skills and some of the voices that people want to know what's happening. So it's not a difficult thing for me to do that. I'm really good at research. I don't, I don't know, you know, everyone's like, how do you know all that stuff? I'm like, poor Lisa was in the car with me, and I'm like, what the expletive did, did the, the House just try to pass? Was it the continuing resolution from the Senate? Did they write their own? And, and we're both like looking, trying to figure out what it was. We did figure it out. I just know where to look. So it seems a little bit churlish not to use those skills to answer questions for people who don't have those skills. And, uh, and I will also say that what I do is very much like being an athlete. If you're a runner, you don't just say, oh, I don't feel like doing it today. I mean, there's that muscle memory of you have to get out there and do it again the next day. And so, so I just write every day. And how do you choose what actually makes it in, what, what it seems like it's necessary for your audience in that moment to best understand? That's the fun question. The fun question is, you know, when everything is coming at you, what are the stories that you need to note? And I have likened it in the past to watching the cement come out of a cement truck when, the, when you pour a foundation, if you've seen that. It's kind of mesmerizing because it just keeps coming down the chute and there's like, like it's all gray and there's slag in it and you're kind of not paying attention. But then there might be a really big stone and you think, uh-oh, that's gonna be a problem, right? But for me, I, th I literally think of it as if you're watching that gray come out and it's just gone by and then all of a sudden there's a child's toy. You're like, that doesn't belong. That's unusual. Or my other example is a leaping carp. You know, you're like, that doesn't belong. That we need to take note of. And what I think about is if I were a graduate student in 150 years and I wanted to know what happened on September 29th, 2023, which I think is today, um, what stories matter? What are the stories that matter today? And what what can be put off? So, for example, today was the speech that Mark Milley gave, uh, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for his retirement after, after 44 and a half years in the service. It's important. It's an important speech. But it can wait until the weekend. There are things that happen today that can't wait until the weekend because a historian who looks at that is going to say, oh, I need to know the timing of that. And so Mark Milley is, got put off, and you will see him probably tomorrow night. Now, I'd love to talk about your book. I devoured 
this book. I have, I have read a lot of books over the course of uh, my role in this job, um, but this one was truly a pleasure. I already knew I would like your writing, but this was really enjoyable. And uh, something that actually made me exclaim out loud was a vocab distinction between conservatism and movement conservatism. And I will confess to this whole audience that I have been using the term conservatism, I believe, to mean movement conservatism probably my entire life, certainly for as long as I have been talking about politics here in America. Can you define for us the difference? I can, but I'm laughing a little bit because you just made this book sound so boring. <gasps> no! <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I am not into the same things that everyone else is into. I will own that. This book is really fun and really easy to read, and you'll blaze through it. I'm into fun things too, I promise. So, so what she's referring to is that the book starts with an important distinction, and that is it makes me crazy when people call the current day Republican Party members conservatives, because they are not. They are radical extremists. And, and if you read me, you, you will note that I don't call them conservatives, because we do have uh, both a world history of conservatism and also a, a proud American history of conservatism. And those are not what is happening in the current day Republican Party. So the, the conservatism grew out of the reaction to the French Revolution. And there, I'm not gonna do the whole, the whole spiel on it, but, but it's important because Edmund Burke, who had, was the thinker who really began to articulate conservatism, had actually supported the American Revolution, but he was really nervous about the French Revolution because he said, you know, there's a little problem of an opening gap between people's necks and their heads, and this is not a good thing for a government to do. I mean, it's, a, it's really a problem, right? Like, should a government do that? Old governments did that. Should a democratic government do that? Well, well, maybe not. So why not? What should a government do? And what he says is a government should not try to impose an ideology on a people because very quickly it starts to be loyal to the ideology and not the people, and it tries to make the people fit the ideology rather than the other way around, which strikes me as sounding familiar. But the, what a government should do is to try and create stability. So in order to create stability, it should promote the, the elements of a social system that establish stability families, churches, in his case, the aristocracy. You know, he had this whole list of things that you should try and support in order to promote stability. And there's a number of reasons he wanted stability. That's conservatism. You don't have to agree with it or not, but that's, the, that's what it was when he, when he wrote it. Movement conservatives, the people who call themselves conservatives nowadays, rise in the United, and, and the, the, I'll go back to what the history of conservatism in the United States is, but movement conservatives rose in the United States in really taking their form in 1937, but certainly after World War II. And what they were saying is we are conservatives because we wanna get rid of the New Deal government. We wanna get rid of a government that uh, regulates business and protects a social safety net and promotes infrastructure and protects civil rights. We want to get go before that. We want to get rid of that. And so we are conservatives. And even at the time when they begin to articulate this, people are like, you people are total radicals because this system is a system that works. And conservatism would say, don't abandon a system that works. So 
they, they become known, they start to call themselves conservatives to sound like they're doing something that is, that is like Burke suggested, but they're not. They're trying to overturn this government. So they become known as movement conservatives when people recognize they are simply a political movement with their own ideology. That happens later, but they are a specific ideology that they are trying to impose on the United States. Now, what the, the trick that's at the front of the book that I really kind of like is that there was somebody who called himself a conservative in the United States, and the modern-day movement conservatives try to, try to claim him, and I'm claiming him back, because Abraham Lincoln uh, was originally called a radical because he believed in ending human enslavement. And there's a longer story behind it than that. But he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. People like me are trying to honor the Declaration of Independence, which was our first national document. So doesn't that make us the conservatives? And you people the radicals, because you're trying to make enslavement national and, and ultimately international? And so he begins calling himself a conservative because he is trying to defend the principles of the Declaration of Independence, that we should all be created equal, treat, treated equally before the law, and have a right to have a say in our government. And I'm very proud to say on a, on a podcast just this week, somebody said, someone said, you're a conservative, are you? And I said, absolutely. Absolutely, I'm a conservative. I believe in equality before the law and a right to have a say in your government, and I stand absolutely firm on those things, and that is not what today's Republican Party stands for. So, so there you go. Now, I can't think of a single member of the media or a member of any political party who uses the word movement, or the term movement conservative. Do you think that that can be brought back? Oh, and, and oh, please do. correct me. Yeah. No, no, they do. The, okay. the, this is, the, the issue is you don't see it much in modern-day journalism, but it was really well recognized in the 1980s and the 1990s. And, and literally, there are entire columns on it. But the problem is now it's become so ingrained, people think that, that, think that this is what the Republican Party always was, and it wasn't. It, it wasn't. This, is not, this was an attempt to purge out of the Republican Party the vast majority of members who actually think the government does have a role to play in the economy, does have a role to play in, in social welfare, does have a role to play in civil rights, and does have a role to play in infrastructure, which I think it describes, I don't even have to think it, I know it describes more than 70% of the American people, regardless of what party they consider themselves part of. Now, the structure of this book is really interesting to me. You sandwich a a deep dive into what happened under the Trump presidency uh, between two histories. We start with a many decades series of machinations by the Republican Party to sort of lay the groundwork for what became the Trump authoritarian experiment, as you call it. And then we take a look at what led to the progressive era, which we'll get to. Um, I am curious, when we're talking about what led to the Trump presidency. You're discussing Republicans who were laying the groundwork for perhaps oligarchy, and yet it was fertile soil for authoritarianism. Was there a fatal flaw in the plan, uh, or was, was the world just waiting for someone who was just right to step in and use that foundation to do what Donald Trump did? Um, did anyone see this coming? 
Do you mean in the plan for the United States or the plan Yes, in for terms of the Republican Party. Oh. Uh, was, was there any intention here, or was this a big whoopsie, basically, is my question. That's actually a really interesting question, because there's a big debate that goes on about whether Trump was an aberration or whether he was a continuation. And I'm a Libra, so I always say both. Because what you get in the first chunk of the book, and it's interesting because you're the fourth person now to say it's an interesting, although you're being much more polite than they were, um, structure of the book. And honestly, it never occurred to me to write it any other, any other way because the book is how we got here, where here is, and how we get out. And literally, that's the one piece of the book that I never had any doubts about. I mean, I, I didn't, never didn't think to question it until other, other people did. But the way it's set up is the Republican Party, I'm sorry, no, erase that part. Because this faction of movement conservatives was very, very small coming out of World War II. Members of both political parties and vast majorities of members of both political parties believed in what we know as a liberal consensus, what I just described, a government that was active in those four major fields. Now, they disagreed about the aspects of it, you know, and they could fight tooth and nails about whether we should have tariffs that were this high or that high, and, you know, and, or what we should do for welfare legislation. Should we do this or should we do that? That was all part of this push and pull between the parties over this concept of the, the liberal consensus. How should the government accomplish those four things? There's a very small group of people who don't want it to do those things. They want to go back to the 1920s. They want to get rid of business regulation more than anything else. What's interesting about this period in the 1950s especially is that the people who are embracing movement conservatism are, are really not talking about taxes, which in the, the Eisenhower administration, the top's ta top tax bracket in the Eisenhower administration is, does anyone know? 91%. Yeah, 91 to 92%. And they're not talking about that. Because in those days, we believed in, uh, or the, co the country believed that you had to pay down the war debt. So this is not, really, this, you don't hear a lot about that. But you hear about business regulation all the time. Get out of my face. I want to run my business the way I want to run my business. Um, but you also see them teaming up with those members at the time, the Democratic Party, who lived in the American South and were virulent racists and wanted to make sure that the principles that were embedded in the, the New Deal, for example, or in... Um, Truman's administration when he begins to desegregate the military or in Eisenhower's administration, that we don't get the, the racial uh, categories erased from the American legal system. So you get them, and then you also get religious conservatives who don't like the idea of women working outside the home. They like the idea of patriarchy. Really not a very big group of people, and they don't manage to get much traction until you get Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, the Supreme Court decision that says that uh, segregation in public schools is unconstitutional. With that, those people begin to argue that this powerful government that's doing all these things that people really, really like, the Eisenhower interstate system, for example, that that is simply a way for the government to transfer wealth from largely white people, people of property, to those without property. So it's a redistribution of wealth. That is, it is socialism. And this is the 1940s and the 1950s, and, and China um, falls to communism in 1949, so this is a really big deal. So they begin to uh, really push this idea that people who are backing the liberal consensus are akin to socialism. To socialism, and they begin to talk about liberals with a capital L as if it is like communists with a capital L, right? Like Chinese communists. And um, 
that idea begins to drive a wedge through the liberal consensus. Now, now as you keep on going into this whole period, the, the, the marker is really the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 and when he takes office in 1981. He's embracing this language. He doesn't actually govern based on it, but he is embracing that language. But within his term, once he starts, especially, especially with the first sets of tax cuts, but also with the, the welfare cuts that he enacts very quickly and then his attack on the striking um, air traffic controllers, People recognize that this system is not actually the one they wanted, and the, the national debt starts to do, triples during Reagan's years, and they start to turn against the, this idea. And by 1986, the, when they're trying to protect the second set of tax codes, Reagan's people begin to talk about ballot integrity, but their private memos say that they are expecting that this will cut black Americans out of the vote in the places where they're talking about it. So by 1986, you have both this idea that we better start picking our voters, and you also have the um, uh, the idea that that they got to get more people to the polls. So who do they turn to? But the evangelical Christians, and that really it starts before 1980, but it really takes off in '86 around those tax cuts. And with that, with those two things, you're going to see the Republican Party continually insist that their that their opponents are anti-American. Even Republicans are rhinos in name only which was always surprising to me because, of course, the people that were in the Republican Party, like George H.W. Bush, was a traditional Republican. He was being cast out by these new people. Um, and as, as that, that, that language went forward, increasingly you saw the Republicans becoming less and less popular, needing to choose their voters, and really needing to ramp up their language. So. Still, by 1918, I'm sorry, I'm, what century I'm in? 20, 20, 15. Still, there is that sense that this language is really designed to win office, to keep taxes low, and to bubble along that way. But what it does do is it hollows out the middle class and creates a group of people who are ripe for a strong man to come in and say, hey, you feel like you're not economically important anymore or culturally important or religiously important or socially important anymore. I can fix that. And that's when that, that you know, a move toward oligarchy, which looked very much like other periods in our history, the 20s, the 1890s, the, the 1850s, suddenly became, uh-oh, now we've got ourselves a strong man. But Trump didn't step into the office as a strong man. He really changes dramatically after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And at that point, when he sides with the, the radical right extremists, at that point, he is starting to build a movement. And from then on, in, that's the summer of 2017, from then on, you're going to see that oligarchical thread switch to become a movement. And so, so, I'm sorry, it's continuity and change. I'm a historian. <laughs> I do want to talk about this radical voter base because there was certainly a lot of within the media questioning as to, well, where did this base come from? Who are these individuals? And you do reference in the book a, a previously apathetic group of people who were sort of stirred to movement. And some look at it and say, well, these were essentially sleepers who just needed the right person to step up and wake them up 
and say everything you're feeling deep down inside, bring that to the surface and let's use it. Does that ring true to you of that group? I mean, was this something just simmering underneath the surface that simply needed the right person to awaken it? Well, there's a wonderful book that's written in 1951 in which, um, a guy who's a longshoreman in San Francisco, a guy named Eric Hoffer, says, you know, let's stop wondering where we got Hitler and Mussolini. Because everyone's writing these books about Hitler and Mussolini. And you know what? Who cares? Because every generation has a gazillion Hitlers and Mussolinis in it waiting to rise. And the trick is not where they came from. The trick is why people follow them. So let's study the people who are following those, those individuals. And he argued, I think persuasively, that what you need to have a strong man rise is a disaffected group of people who feel like they have been left behind in some way. And you need to create those people first, because you can't take people who are, you know, uh, have great jobs and their kids are getting good educations and there's plenty of food on the table and they have nice cars and, you know, they're not going to say, oh yeah, let's tear it all down. So you get those people and you say, I can take you back to when you were important. And the way that I'm gonna do that, because that past was so great, is by putting forth these laws that have been written either by God or by the universe that my enemies are refusing to honor. And it's easy, but I'm the only one who can do it. And if you can do that, if you can tap into those people, and if you can make them be part of the process, they don't always expect to get anything from it they expect to have a heroic experience. They expect to be the ones who can, oh, I don't know, recreate a nation. They're the ones who can bring us back to 1776. I mean, that was so significant when they're in the, the, the US Capitol talking about 1776. It's very much part of this, let's go back to that, that beautiful old world. But that being said, I think that sounds, I, I, personally to me, that sounds a little bit too easy. And I always like to remind people that in 2016, Donald Trump was the most moderate Republican running for office that year. Because we now remember the stuff that really came to the fore in, in, after 2017, after the Unite the Right rally, the sexism and the racism and the violence and, and all of that, that was hidden in the early months um, of, of his presidency at least, and we could talk about that. But when he was on the stage running for office in 2016, he called for better and cheaper health care. He called for uh, ending the, the tax loopholes that meant rich people weren't paying taxes. He called for promoting infrastructure. He called for bringing manufacturing back. He called for taking all those people who had had their lives hollowed out by the past 40 years of, of industrial and financial policy and saying, I can fix these things. And, and his solutions are actually not that different than the Democrats are putting forward now. He just didn't do them in the end, he went for the tax cuts instead. But for those people who signed on for those things, it was not, I think, necessarily that big a switch then to become willing to accept the other things. And then when they recognized they weren't getting anything that they thought they were signing up for, for many of them, they signed up for the rest as well. Well, let's talk about the rest. Let's talk about the sexism and the racism, these things that were hidden. At what point, well, sure, uh, at what point? Ignorable, if you ignorable, were so inclined sure. to ignore them, not hidden. 
When do you lean in as the president, as any leader? When do you decide, this is actually great for me? If I shout this from the rooftops, people are going to you know, lift me above their shoulders. I mean, what, what leads to that decision? Well, I've never been in that position myself, so I'm going to just suggest what one could see. One of the things that interests me about, well, I study politics, so that's not unreasonable a question. One of the things that always interested me about Trump, and still interests me a lot about Trump, and if I ever wrote about him, which I never will, he's, it's not that interesting, is um, <laughs> he's not a politician, right? He, he's never been a politician. He, he's, he's, I can't say that word, he's really bad at politics. Infrastructure week, anybody? But he is a phenomenal mirror of people in front of him. So I found him fascinating because he's a salesman. You know, I think if you plunked him down in another country, he would sell whatever that country wanted to sell. He's a salesman. And so he looked at that population that had been dispossessed over the previous 40 years and said, this is what they want. I can sell it to them. And so he did. And he has done that. And he is constantly selling to the people who support him. The speech he gave today is, um, it was fascinating, just fascinating, you know, that, and, and it shows where those people are going. So I don't think you can look at him the way you can look at some much more political people who are less inclined, I think, to say, I don't care where this takes me, I just want to be popular, and are more willing to say, I think this would be a good thing to do, and therefore I have to figure out a way to bring along a coalition that will enable me to do that. Because that's a lot of work, and it's work that I don't think that, that Trump has ever been able to do. But, but watch it. That's what's really interesting is watching... I mean, I'm going to pick on Eisenhower here. There's this image of Eisenhower as being sort of this Elmer Fudd, which we should get into because he was whip smart. But he gives this press conference, and somebody asks him a really straightforward question, and it's a really loaded question about some military stuff that's going on. And he's like, he gives this rambling answer, and he's all over the place, and the reporters are like, but sir. And he's like, well, and, you know, Indochina, Germany, you know. and. And at the end of it, he, it's been complete word salad. And he walks out, and he starts giggling. And he says to one of his aides, really got him, didn't I? Like, he never gave an answer because he knew he couldn't give an answer. But it was deliberate. And, and doing that sort of thing, these people who say, I'll move this piece here because then I can move that piece there and that piece there and that piece there and that piece is over there. And then finally, Nancy Pelosi. There you go. Nancy Pelosi could... could uh, uh, Sell, sell water on the coast of Maine. But, but, you know, look at Kevin McCarthy. He can't. He couldn't sell water in a desert. Uh, you know, you regularly, and it's, it's so casual in the book, and I actually kind of appreciate that, you, uh, you know, make note of something that Donald Trump might have said or did and how that echoes, if not, directly imitates the actions of former fascist leaders in the world. Um, and, you know, there are those who would say, uh, oh, that's just fear-mongering, or you're being extraordinarily partisan, et cetera. What would you say to that assessment 
of your assessment? So, so I want to be a little bit careful about fascism because I'm one of those really annoying people who always says, well, it's not quite fascism because when the fascists did this, they did this. and they'd... So what the, the, I do make comparisons between specific things that the Trump administration did and fascist governments did or fascist individuals did. But one of the points that I was trying to make in the book is that I really don't like the concept of comparing things to fascism simply because fascism really is articulated articulated in the 1920s by Benito Mussolini. And it's actually a really interesting theory. It's an abhorrent theory, but it's actually quite interesting how he got to it and all that. But it presupposes that there wasn't anything like it before the 1920s, when in fact, ultimately what fascism says is that some people are better than others. And therefore, logically, there'll be one person who's better than everybody else, because if, every, if everybody is of different levels, there's going to be one person who's better than everybody else, and that person and his minions should rule over everyone else. That is a way of thinking about the world that says some people are better than others and have the right to rule. It's called fascism in the 1920s, and it's got its own little pieces of what, what happens with, with um, uh, business and, and, you know, women and all kinds of stuff. But that idea that some people are better than others and have the right to rule is so deeply embedded in American history, which is the only one that I can talk about, that I wanted to make sure people understood that you can't stop in the 1920s because, of course, when Hitler imposes fascism on Germany, he actually uses United States laws about indigenous Americans and black Americans to write his own laws. So to sort of say, oh, the person's like Hitler. So like, wait a minute, Hitler was like us. And then the, you go a step before that, of course, our black laws came out of the laws from before the Civil War, which were also about some people being better than others and having the right to rule. And of course, that comes, you know, and I can keep on going back. But that idea stands against the idea that everybody should be treated equally before the law and have a right to a say in their own government. So what I was trying to do was to say, this is a long strand in our history, and it's a, we can't sell it to Germany. Like, like Germany, every country in the world has had people like this because people are just people. But there's this other strand as well, and that has also run through our history. So if people said that I was, um, I will say, I've, I found, I don't know if you found this, I, when I reread the book, I thought the second section was horrific. Didn't you find it that? What do you mean when you say horrific? It was terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I thought you meant your own writing. I thought, well, don't well, say no. that about <laughs> yourself. No, but you read it and you think it couldn't have been, it couldn't, literally you think it couldn't possibly have been that bad. And so I'm checking my footnotes again and again going, shit, it really was that bad. Yeah. I had forgotten. Yeah. I really had forgotten until I read that section. And it's actually a concern of mine that people won't make it to the third section because that second section is really terrifying. Um, so I, I guess I would say I, I got nothing because I'm not, I, I, I actually don't like the fascist comparison, but, but it happened. And, and the stuff that we are learning now that happened that we didn't know is even worse. So um, I think that was what really shocked me about that section is if you strip out the noise, he got fired, they had this fight, there was this speech, all this stuff. Um, what you see is these really stark steps toward authoritarianism and how freaking close we came. Because if you think on January 6th, think how close Mitt Romney came to the mob. And they were one of the people he was, he was one of the people they were hunting because he had voted in favor of 
Trump's first impeachment conviction. What would have happened if they had gotten Romney? Or Chuck Grassley was in that building, Nancy Pelosi was in that building, Mike Pence was in the building. That's the three top people in the United States government after the president who was not in the building. When I think about what might have happened had any of those people been injured and what the government might have done to say, hey, we got an insurrection on our hands, we better take care of it, I, it keeps me up at night. I genuinely don't know the answer to this question. What does the U.S. government do when they do have an insurrection on their hands? Well, it's only happened, well, twice now, and so far, um, <laughs> I'm just asking gone real well either time, has it? <laughs> so the, in, in 1861, when, uh, or in 1860, when the, the South seceded, most people forget that James Buchanan, a Democrat, was in office. And, and can I just say, and I hope none of his relatives are here, what a freaking weenie, you know? So, so he goes, he's sitting there, and he's like, well, they can't do that. But I have no power to stop them. So poor Lincoln's up there in Illinois going, uh, dude, my country that I should go, it's tearing an half here. And he's like, bummer, ain't it? You know? And, and I'm, I paraphrase slightly, but one wonders if there had been a heavier hand from the government before Lincoln took office, months after the South seceded, if it would have gone where it did. And we could talk more about that because that's an interesting question. But similarly, um, you know, I don't think it's something that a democracy is prepared to handle. I think it's, a, I think it's something we have to figure out how to handle. Mm. I suppose I, I wanted to know what, what this government, this current government, or at least that one, so fresh on the trail of Donald Trump would have done. I mean, do you, do you have any guesses? Oh, but remember, in, on January 6th, Donald Trump was still in office. That's what's got me terrified, because it, we know that he was eager to put in place the Insurrection Act, an old law saying that the government could call out troops in the face of an insurrection. And you know how we know that that was a real concern is that on January 3rd, 2020, all 10 living defense secretaries, we've lost one since then quite tragically, um, put an, uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post saying uh, to the troops and to, to military leaders, don't do it. You know, whatever you think of doing, don't do it, because we will make sure that you end up, you know, in real legal trouble for doing this. Okay, it's Christmas time, New Year's, and they all, all ten of them get together and write an op-ed? That was not, hey, we have nothing to do with our time, let's all ten of us write an op-ed. It's never happened before, right? So, I'm, what my concern is, is that the former president would have in, in, invoked the Insurrection Act. And, and, and how many of us would have said, hey, you shouldn't do that. They just injured, God willing, it wouldn't have been worse than that, one of our leaders. Um, and it doesn't matter what party they're from. I mean, you don't do that. Ostensibly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do want to take a moment here. We have a number it's of questions. It's kind of crazy that we, we did this, isn't it? I mean, do you ever wake up and be like, like I, I was just reading what Trump was saying today, and I'm like, really? Like, are we really living through that? I mean, sometimes you just want to kind of push the needle off the record and say, come on, really?
Uh, I do want to know what everyone out here thinks, and we have a lot of questions from the audience, a lot, and I will get to as many as I can. I want to take a minute here before we go on with our conversation to fit some of these in, because I think that this civic dialogue is one of the most important country-saving things that we can do. Uh, and I, I love this question, whoever asked this. Uh, Heather, does it ever happen that current events change how you understand history? 150,000%. I am not a mathematician. <laughs> um, and, and that's the, you know what, that's the real shocker, is you, you learn something new and you think, crap, that changes everything I thought about that before. And this actually, and I'm happy to talk more about that, but I, I do want to throw out the idea here. One thing that I find fascinating is the idea that the present changes the past. And, and people are always like, oh, come on, no, that's not the way it works. How can you go back and change the past? But how many times has something happened to you and you think, oh, now I understand why she said that three years ago or three months ago or whatever. And so many things that happen now, you hear about them and you think, oh, that's why that was going on. So one of the big things for me is I knew absolutely nothing about Ukraine when I started doing these letters. Like, I'm not entirely convinced I could have, excuse me, found it on a map. And the more I learned about Ukraine and the more I learned about Paul Manafort and who had directed Trump's campaign and the things that he had done in Ukraine and then the more I learned about who he had worked with and then the more I learned about how many things they had done in the Republican Party and then I learned about who was involved in that and then I learned about some of the methods they used and then I learned about what Kissinger and Nixon had done in Chile and I'm like, holy crap, how did I go through my life not knowing all this stuff? But it's changed the whole way I think about that and that happens if not every day, at least every week. I think that's one of the greatest pleasures of my own job uh, is prior to the many dives into American history I have taken now over the past seven years, I don't think I'd really changed my mind very much. And now I change it weekly. And it's, I think that's very valuable. Uh, let's see. Hmm. I had a, I had a um, there's a thing about writers, you know, it's very hard to let a book go. And I had a, a wonderful colleague who said to me once, you know what you need to do? You can't go back and rewrite the book. Because by definition, at the end of the book, you're smarter than you were when you started. And so if you go back and re rewrite it again to make your meet your standards at the end, then you'll, the same thing will happen. You'll get to the end and you'll think, oh my god, that person who started that book was an idiot. <laughs> and he said, you know what you need to do? You need to forgive that poor, benighted woman who started that book, close the cover, and write a new one. And I thought, <laughs> it's given me such permission to say, OK, I did the best I could. I wish I'd written it differently, but now I'll write it, the next one better. You're only ready <laughs> to write it once it's done. I just love the poor, benighted woman. It's like, <laughs> oh, I'm that idiot, you know? Uh, so I think this is an interesting question, uh, because my answer is, what's the difference? And I want to know if you can tell me there is a difference. Which is the bigger threat to democracy, Donald Trump or the movement he has created? The movement, the movement, because it's not about Trump anymore. And this is something fascinating that I watch all, the, so let me, and I'm happy to explain more about him. Think of the NRA. So I heard someone saying the other day, oh, the NRA, we gotta get the NRA from, from stopping buying politicians and changing our, our laws so that we can't have gun safety laws, which are enormously popular across this country, by the way, amongst Democrats and Republicans, both. They all want gun safety regulations, so why don't we have them, right? And someone said, it's the NRA, and I was like, really? 
Is it? The NRA is out of money. The, the head of it's in all kinds of legal trouble. When is the last time you heard the NRA working with any politicians? When was the last time you saw somebody with an NRA guy with a politician? And I thought, is it the NRA or is it the movement that the NRA created that now the Republicans are afraid of? And I don't know the answer to that, but I think my vote is for the latter, not the former. And so, so you think about where we are now and you look at the Project 2025, which is in the thousand page document that, that a group of people who are supporting Trump right now or a Trump-like candidate that's in there um, ca are calling for and what they wanna do is get rid of the, the nonpartisan civil service, weaponize the Department of Justice, weaponize the Department of Defense. You know, it's a thousand pages and the, the obvious answer is Donald Trump is an old man. Um, he is not seemingly at his psychological best currently. And, um, and he's not gonna live forever. You know, somebody eventually is gonna, is gonna step into his place. And the real question for a, for a strong man is will somebody, will people be willing to not be apathetic and to switch their loyalties to someone else? So far we have not seen that happen. I have a thought that there is at least one person that could step into those shoes. I won't say that name. But so far we have not seen it happen. Well, someone does ask, you know, what do you think will happen to our country and democracy if Donald Trump himself is elected in this upcoming election again? There is, there is no doubt. Uh, and, and, you know, people ask this, is there a reason you're booing? What, what should I have done? Oh, no, 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 that's, no, no, sorry. Um, there, there are some things you don't want to make self-fulfilling prophecies. Uh, you, could, you think about it, you could figure out who it is. Um, uh, what the heck was the question? I'm sorry, it's been such a long day. It was a What's good question. What's going to happen if Donald Trump oh, is elected oh, again? So, so, this is, so this goes back to your point about am I, over, am I exaggerating the dangers that we're in? And I would say, listen to what they are saying. You know, I am not making this up, I promise you. I have no, I'm a historian. We want to study the facts so that we know how to think about the way societies change. You, you don't want to distort that um, because then you won't come up with the right answer. Literally, he is saying he is going to go after his enemies and throw them in jail. And he talked about uh, accusing, I want to get my words right here, accusing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that is the person in charge of the strongest military in the world. An extraordinarily well-educated man, by the way, as I say, he served the country for 44 and a half years. Um, he served in active duty all around the world. He is in charge of our military, what is, you know, the fundamental goal of government is to protect us. And he has said he should be accused of treason and that in the past such an act would be punishable by death. public radio, but WTF, you know? Is this like, I'm not making that up. And he said it repeatedly, he doubled down on it again today. And the, the idea, and again, he's, it, there are literally people working on what is called Schedule F, and Schedule F is designed to get rid of the, 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 the nonpartisan civil service, which we've had since 1883, 
and turn it into loyalists. And this was something that he put in place at the end of his first year. It's one of the very first things Joe Biden did is he got rid of Schedule F, which was getting rid of all the nonpartisan civil servants and making them partisan civil servants. And think about what that does to a democracy if you get rid of all that ballast, the people who are just doing your paperwork and don't care who's president, they're just showing up for, for, for their jobs. Um, if you get rid of them and make them loyalists, well, what you do is you create the kind of world that you see in uh, Hungary, for example, under Viktor Orban, or Russia under Vladimir Putin. And, th and they're not being secret about it. So, so I think a vote for Donald Trump, or an election of Donald Trump, or a Trump-like character, is the end of American democracy. For now. I don't think it would leave forever, but it would leave for my lifetime which might be very short if that happens, actually. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so let me ask you this. You know, you, you write in your book, we're pivoting now to the third part to of the, the book. Stuff? To the good stuff? To the good stuff. You write, you know, are the principles on which this nation was founded viable? That is a question. What do you think? Are they? Yes. And this is, people always say, why do I have faith? And I have faith because I believe that fundamentally humans want above all else human self-determination. It is a humanist value as well as an American value, but that's not the point. The idea of being able to control our own destinies is, I think, the highest aspiration of humanity. And if that's the case, I do not believe that Americans, who tend to do the right thing, as they say, after they've tried everything else, are going to give that away in favor of uh, a poor copy of what we have been in the past and what we can be again in the future. So let me ask you then, what is it within individualism, not focusing on the community, the greater good, that does triumph on occasion? Because to me, it is the commitment to the community. It is working as a whole and commitment to democratic principles that results in the continuation of America's democracy. What, what makes people choose the individual over the group? So that's a really interesting and important question because you are correct that our best moments, and, and American history has really been about community. I mean, the idea that we've got these lone rangers out there, you know, doing whatever they do on their own is completely a myth and has always been a myth. But it's an attractive myth, and it's a myth that runs very deep, I think, in the United States history, but also in a lot of our literature from around the world, but especially Western literature. The idea of the individual guy out there taking on Goliath, right, taking on the empire, taking on this, this, this outsized struggle whether it's a government, whether it's a, a nature, whether it is, you know, a bear, you know, that there's this, this individual assertion of, of strength. And the, that image, that, that myth has been weaponized in American politics on two major occasions. One is in the period immediately after the Civil War when Southern Democrats <clears throat> who didn't 
like the idea that the federal government was protecting the rights of black Americans, started to call that socialism, which I think we've talked about here tonight. And instead, they offered a vision of a different kind of great American, and that was the cowboy. And the cowboy, of course, is our really major symbol of Reconstruction. People forget that, but the cowboy rises in 1866, and he's operative until about 18, 1887. And that image of the cowboy as a white guy who wants nothing but to work hard and, and take care of his own, um, is, in, is first of all mythological. A third of the cowboys were people of color, men of color, and, um, and the cowboys were entirely dependent on the federal government, as was the West more than any other region in the country. But that embedded in that was this idea that the, the, the white guy is out there being the hero all by himself. Now again, we know historically that you could not survive in the West unless you had kinship networks. And so Kit Carson, for example, is a great, a great vision of this, um, this individualism, was married to a, a woman who gave him, an, uh, she was Hispanic, who gave him entry into this whole network of Hispanic uh, kinship areas that enabled him to sell furs and all the sorts of things that one did to be Kit Carson. But um, that, image that the cowboy stood against this socialist government that was redistributing wealth to black people translated beautifully to American society after uh, Brown versus Board of Education. So we get, there are actually no um, westerns, at least no major movie westerns filmed during World War II when people are focusing on buddy movies and community movies and war movies where everybody helps each other out. We get the rise of westerns again after Brown versus Board primarily, and we get all the TV westerns, Bonanza, the first thing ever filmed in color, I'm sorry, the first uh, TV show ever filmed in color, Lone Ranger, Rawhide, there are nine of them on TV in the 1950s, if I recall correctly. That image of the individual lone guy stands against this idea of the government imposing socialism to help black Americans and brown Americans in that period. And that idea is very deliberately picked up by the movement conservatives. I mean, you get Barry Goldwater out there with his cowboy hat and his cowboy boots saying, you know, my family did it all on, on, on our own. His family did it with government contracts. I mean, quite literally. And he had a chauffeur when he was growing up, and he, he you know, he was, he was an heir, right? But in his mind, he was this individual. And you see Reagan picking it up with his switch from riding an English riding style. He was a very good horseman um, to riding a cowboy style. You know, that was all part of, let's pick up this idea that we're going to get rid of that government that supports, you know, the, the, the regulation of business and all that um, because we're individuals. But the reality is that that hollowed out society. It's, it's never been real. It's always been a myth. And you do describe in this last third of your book how, I don't know if you want to describe them, the, the downtrodden, the, the subjugated minorities, the underclass, what have you, set a path toward progressivism. And it, it did succeed. Do you see in America today a similar way to another era of progressivism like the New Deal, like the Great Society? Is there a pathway? Are people sufficiently uh, motivated and organized to get us there? Absolutely. But, but I do want to make one, um, one, one adjustment there, and that's that one of the things that really concerns me is in, when we talk about the Florida curriculum, for example, or the Texas curriculum or the Oklahoma curriculum that are stripping out of our 
K through 12 institutions the idea of minority history, for example. That actually worries me less than something else that people aren't talking about in that curricula. And that is that what is really being stripped out in Florida, for example, which was not a history curriculum, it was a, it was a social studies curriculum, so it included um, uh, the law, it included economics, it included, there were five aspects of it, is they strip out agency. So there are black people in that curriculum, they're just not doing anything except supporting the status quo. Even those who are taking on the status quo are doing it in a, in a really, we agree with the guys on top kind of way. And the, the thing that's important about American history is that people who were not included in our democracy, women, people of color, indigenous Amer Americans, black Americans, have always said, hey, wait just a minute here. If everybody's created equal, what about me? And they have kept that in front of us constantly so that over the years they have in fact expanded that to include women, among other things, which the framers would have you know, thought you were including Martians. Right? That there's no way they thought women should be included. So that constant expansion has been because of those people who have previously been excluded. And they have done so even at times when they did not have the vote. I mean, the progressive era is a great example of this because as black Americans and certainly women are excluded from the vote, they manage to demonstrate in other ways their, their embrace of the concepts of citizenship without having the vote and to really push that envelope by saying, hey, wait a minute here, you're gonna, you're gonna give that guy the vote and not me? And one of the things that the book tries to do is set out the different ways in which that expansion has happened. But the, but the piece that I always feel like we're kind of missing these days is that we're all, most of us, unhappy about many things, but these periods when we have extraordinary unrest are also periods of extraordinary opportunity, true opportunity. So if you thought about America in 1853, you'd have thought, well, the enslavers are taking it all over. And, you know, they've got, this, they've got the national government, you know, black Americans, well, they're out of luck, right? You know, nothing's ever going to change here. And by, that's 1853. By 1854, the North has come together to say, wait a minute, we're not gonna put up with enslavement. By 1856, they formed a new political party that says, hey, we don't, might not agree on anything about finances or immigration, but by God, we can agree on democracy. By 1859, Abraham Lincoln has articulated a new vision of, of uh, government. By 1861, he has signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and by November of 1863, he gives a Gettysburg Address saying, we are dedicating this nation to a new birth of freedom. Less than a decade, we go from we're handing it all over to the lead enslavers to we're taking it back for ourselves and we're writing it into our primary law. I mean, that's, it's amazing. And, and the progressive era is another period when you have these periods of great instability and, and extremes of wealth and different people stepping up and new voices stepping up. There are times of extraordinary excitement, you know, the, the music and the writing and the sculpture and the, the new inventions and the new ways to do business and the new housing arrangements and the new family arrangements and who's allowed in and who's, who's not allowed in and all that stuff changes. And it's a period, one of the reasons I love the 1890s is because 
it's so exciting. You get new writing and new art movements. And, and I look at the press and everyone's like, well, the world sucks. And I'm like, have you looked at the music? You know, have you looked at the art? Have you looked at all these brand new voices? My God, the, the impeachment hearing last night? I was killing myself at some of these younger people who were so freaking funny. They were funny in Congress. And I'm like, we got a new era going on here, you know? And so I do think we are not only have the possibility for that. I think we should embrace the extraordinary um, celebration and excitement of that. But I would also like to say we're in it because look at what's happening in Michigan with uh, the labor movement and all around the people at Starbucks and all the places and Amazon, all the places that are organizing. Look at the fact that the um, FTC has just taken on Amazon on an antitrust case. Look at um, the fact that young people are turning out in droves to see Kamala Harris, like she's Beyonce, you know? And she's, I, I'm, I'm a huge Harris fan, but she's a vice president. Like, who goes to see the vice president, you know? And, um, and there are movements all over the place. I mean, it is like, I don't know what hour o'clock on a Friday night, and you're listening to a historian, which is like, you know? Um, so I think we're actually in a movement. On that note, Heather, impossibly, that little red light right there, which I don't know if you all can see, but it's staring at me, tells me that our time is up. Uh, I am, I, I know, uh, I, I agree. I am unbelievably grateful to you for being here, for getting here, and for having this that conversation. Was all Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I need just a minute here, ladies and gentlemen, to say some thanks to the Music Hall Executive Director, Tina Sattel, New Hampshire Public Radio President and CEO, Jim Schachter, that's my boss, thank you, Jim, New Hampshire Public Radio Producer, Sarah Plord, the Music Hall Live Sound and Recording Engineer, Liz Hobbs, the Music Hall Production Manager, Jana Morris, the Music Hall Literary Producer, Brittany Wasson, Musical Director and Band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought, thank you very much. That's right. And uh, I'm supposed to thank myself, writers on a New England stage interviewer, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you all very much for being here.